You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, the book of Jonah is where we are. Okay, a couple of uh, just quick facts, just kind of backing up from the book of Jonah, just to kind of get you acclimated to where we are in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is made up of 39 books. Okay, that's our Old Testament. The last 17 of those books are called the prophets. The last 12 of those 17 books are called the minor prophets. Now, um, some, some kind of theologians and commentators will call those 12 minor prophets the dark continent of the scriptures. And here's why. Nobody even knows they're in there, right? Like you start getting to books like Nahum and Zephaniah and people start looking at you like you're talking crazy, right? So it's not just they don't know that it's in there, but they have no idea what it's speaking, right? And so, so the dark continent of Scripture are these kind of 12 books kind of at the end of your Old Testament. Um, the book of Jonah sits in those. And, and so now, and I think it's good for you to kind of keep this in your mind too. That, that original, those, those 12 minor prophets is what they're called, those last 12 books of the Old Testament. Those, those 12 books were originally written on one scroll all together. So it's good for you to think in terms when you get to those 12 books of the Bible that it's really more like one kind of big book with 12 volumes to it. They're each communicating an individual message that contributes to an overall message that they're trying to communicate. And just as a quick aside, they're not called minor prophets because they're like in double A trying to play big league ball, right? And so they're minor prophets because they're shorter than the major prophets in those first five of those 17 books. So if you compare um, maybe like an Isaiah with 66 books to a Jonah with, or 66 chapters, with a Jonah that has four chapters, about 48 verses in it, you kind of see that the difference there. That's why they're called the minor prophets. Okay, so let's take, just think about Jonah from a big picture point of view here. There's some similarities between Jonah and the rest of the minor prophets. As if, for instance, here's a similarity, that Jonah, like the rest of the minor prophets, God comes to them and speaks to them and then says, preach to these people, right? So, so they're carrying the words of God. So Jonah was a person who was speaking the words of God, that he was commissioned to do that. You see that very early on in verse 2. God says, go to Nineveh and go preach this message that I'm giving you to preach to them. So, so Jonah is a messenger of God, just like the rest of the prophets. But Jonah is unlike the rest of the prophets in some ways. And, and here would be how he's unique. The rest of the prophets got to speak even when they were speaking to neighboring neighboring nations. Like if you read the book of Nahum, you're going to see Nahum, he is lowering the boom on Nineveh. I mean, he is coming out with some crazy words to the, to, to the Assyrians, to Nineveh. But he is doing that from the comforts of his own country. Jonah did not get that kind of that opportunity. Jonah didn't get that privilege, that, that sort of comfort from his own country. God tells Jonah, it's not just you speaking this message to them, but I want you to go to them and speak it to them. I mean, that's a different ball game, right? Like I, I was trying to think of like how to bring that to life. And if you were alive in the, the 1940s, it would be like at the height of World War II, somebody saying to you, you go to Berlin, find Hitler's little bunker, and you go preach the gospel to him and tell him to repent or he's dead. It just doesn't go real well. It would be like you going to Afghanistan, trying to find some Taliban people and saying, repent or you're dead. It just doesn't go real well, right? So, so you can have a little bit of sympathy right off the, the front here for Jonah. He's given a rough assignment. This isn't one that you would just sign up for willingly, right? Okay, so it's unique in that God is telling him to go there and preach. It's also unique in this. If you start reading the rest of the minor prophets, here's what you're going to find out. That what center stage 
in the mind, like in their books, like if you read Habakkuk or you read Nahum or you read one of these books, you're going to find this about them. What center stage in their book is the message God has given them to preach to these people. So, so maybe it's to the people of Israel, maybe it's, maybe it's to a neighboring nation, but the message God has given them is what takes center stage in the book. But that's not the case with Jonah. Jonah's sermon is five words in the Hebrew language. I didn't know sermons could be that short, right? Okay, I, I didn't even know that, it, that could exist. It's eight words in, in the English Bible in your translation there. Okay, so, so it, that, that's not front and center here. What's front and center, what takes center stage in the book of Jonah is the messenger, not the message. The messenger is the message in the book of Jonah. Like Jonah, how God deals with Jonah, how, how God tracks Jonah down, how God relentlessly pursues Jonah in his rebellion and sin, that's the message of the book. So, so it's unlike the rest of the books in that way, that, that the man is the message. Jonah, the messenger, becomes the message that we're supposed to read as we kind of tear into the book of Jonah. Okay, so let me, let me do this, and then we'll, we'll go to where I, I want to take you this morning. Um, I, I want to give you just kind of three pastoral reasons why I wanted to, to do Jonah to start off 2011 with, with this crew, with, with our church here. So let me give you three reasons real quick. Number one is that in Jonah... It, like the missionary heart of God is revealed. So, so we get to see this beautiful picture of the, the heart of a missionary God as Jonah reveals that to us. So you can't help but see in the book of Jonah, right from the beginning, God say, go to Nineveh and preach. It's revealed. This missionary heart of God pops off the page for us right? And so right from the get-go, you see this. Now, this is where you lose some of just the translation as you read the book of Jonah years later, 2,800 years later, roughly. What you lose when you see, when you read verse 2 of Jonah chapter 1, you lose that that instant rage that would come out of verse 2. Like, if you were a Hebrew man and you listened to verse 2, there would be like an instant impulse of God, what are you doing here? See, like when you, when you read the word Nineveh, there's nothing that kind of confronts you as like, those are bad people, those are, I mean, they haven't hurt you, right? They haven't offended you. But if you were a Hebrew man or woman, when you heard the word Nineveh, you just got the image of that bully on the playground that beat you up every day as a kid. That just came into your mind. Like when you heard the word Nineveh, you got this, this instant picture of your arch enemy, your primary threat to your nation's survival. That this is what you get when you, when you read that word Nineveh if you're a Hebrew person. And think about this, 50, 60 years later from, from the writing of this book, you've got Nineveh, the Assyrian people that destroy Israel. So you instantly carry this this force, when you read the word Nineveh, you instantly get the idea of this is not just God saying, hey, there's a nation over there and I want you to get on my mission of love and be my messenger of grace. It's not that. When you read the word Nineveh, it is God saying, you see your enemies that want to obliterate you? I mean, you know like that person, like when their name is mentioned, you instantly just like, your heart just like gets mad at them? It's those people. God is saying, you know that enemy, your enemy, these people that despise me and despise you, if they had their way, they would absolutely wipe you off the face of the planet. I want you to go there on my mission of love with my message of grace. This is the heart of a missionary God that you see right off the top. 
That, that God is a God that is out to make disciples of every nation, tongue, and tribe, of those who sort of are neutral to him and of those that hate him and despise him. That this is the message. This is that missionary impulse of God that's instantly revealed. That the God has a heart for your neighbor. And one of the reasons that we want to kind of lift this up before you and specifically go through the book of Jonah with you and study through the book of Jonah is we want to keep setting before you in 2011 this missionary God. This God that has got a heart, a broken heart for the nations and your neighborhood. We want you to see him, to live in him. We want that God to start to shape you and form you. And we want us, the people of God in this community, to become these missionary people who are on God's mission with him. Okay, now that kind of leads into the second idea of why I think the book of Jonah is good for us with where we are as a church right now. It not only reveals the missionary heart of God, but it reveals like this missionary heart of the people of God. When you read the book of Jonah, you can't help but but not to like the guy, right? If you read it enough times, you're going to start to think, you know, I mean, as as messed up as Jonah is, I kind of like him. I guess it's just kind of that weird thing that, that people by and large have this view of Jonah that they like. And, and I think one commentary kind of puts a finger on why that is. And he says this, to know Jonah is to love him. And the reason we love him is because he is so much like us in our response to the guidance of God, right? And so when you start to read the book of Jonah, this is why I think it's so good for us. Because it starts to press on us and it starts to show us pockets of resistance in our heart that still have not been submitted to God. It starts to show us areas in our heart that we have still kind of set up our throne on and have kept kind of separate from God. It starts to reveal these pockets of sin inside of us and these areas of rebellion that still remain in us. And this is grace for God for us as we walk through this. And, and I, I just want you to be aware of this phenomenon that happens as God starts to press on us in this room as we work through the book of Jonah. If you're kind of church folk, here's what you have probably become accustomed to doing. When God starts to kind of shine a light on your own hypocrisy, not just the people sitting next to you, as he starts to kind of confront sin in your own heart and pockets of resistance in your own life, here's what naturally happens in the heart of people. This is like a subtle strategy of Satan to work against what God is working into your heart. Like how the people of God, kind of church folk, like to kind of resituate them in a little, or resituate ourselves into a little more of a comfortable position when God starts to press on us is by doing something like this. Man, I wish like those 10 people, like fill in those 10 people, like whoever they are for you, would have heard that. You ever been in that one, right? Like I wish they would have been here to hear that thing. I wish they were reading through the book of Jonah. I wish they would get their life together, right? When God is saying, I wish you would get your life together, like you're the one that needs the grace, not just them, right? You're the one that needs this. Like I heard a pastor the other day, he was asked the question, why do you preach with so much passion? His response was something like this, because I'm trying to convince myself of this, right? That's why I do that. You need that as much as I need that. We all need the book of Jonah. We all need the grace of God to slam into us over the next four, five, six weeks, right? This is all of us. So don't kind of subtly work against that. This is God's grace to you to hold up a mirror before your life and to say, do you see Jonah? Okay, good. Now, do you see yourself here? Do you see yourself in this man? 
Okay, this is God's grace. So I think this is good for us because we, like Jonah, can suppress and run from and reject that missionary heart that God gives us when we become a Christian. Many of us have done that. And Jonah is good grace for us, good medicine for us to open up our hearts to God and the missionary impulse of the people of God. Last thing, and, and then we'll jump in. Is one of the reasons I think Jonah is a good book to go through is because it is a misunderstood book. It's a very misunderstood book. Like, let me just ask you the question. What is Jonah about? What's Jonah about? Actually, this is where it gets really funny because if you sniffed a church growing up, you were probably taught something about Jonah and that he got bitten by a fish, right? You were probably taught, but here's the truth of it. Jonah, now listen to this. Jonah is not about a fish. Jonah is not even about Jonah. Jonah is about the gospel. I, I like how one, one um, preacher kind of works through this. He says this, Jonah is a storied presentation of the gospel. It's the gospel put in a story form for you. So like, think about it this way. When you, and this is God's, this is God being good to us. When you read various parts of the Bible, the gospel comes out in various ways. So if you were to read Paul, if you're going to read Romans, the gospel is going to come out in propositional statements of truth. Like Romans 6.26, uh, the wages of sin is death. Okay, that's, that's the, the truth of the gospel coming out in propositional statements. It's like Romans 3.23, that all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. That's, that's the truth of the gospel coming out, propositional statements. But Jonah, they don't come out in propositional statements. They come out in the form of a story. So it's not the wages of sin is death. It's when you run from God, storms are going to come for your life. When you run from God, eventually you're going to find yourself in the belly of a well. See, it's just a storied presentation of the wages of sin is death for you. It leads to a bad place for you. It takes you where you don't want to go. Okay, it's the storied presentation of that. So I love how, like one pastor, he, he basically kind of put it in this context. If I was commissioned to be the marketer for the motion picture film Jonah, this would be my trade. This would be my words to describe it. It should be on the screen for you. He said this. Jonah is a storied presentation of the gospel. It's a story of sin and grace, of desperation and deliverance. It's a story that reveals that while you and I are great sinners, God is a great savior. It's a story of how a God of great expenditure relentlessly pursues self-righteous fugitives. It's a story that shows that while our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches further. It's a story that shows that God's capacity to clean things up is infinitely greater than our capacity to mess things up. Welcome to the book of Jonah. This is what it is. Okay, now with that said, here, here's, I just want to take one step with us today. It's going to be a small step, and we're going to really kind of tear into the book next week. Small step goes like this. If you could imagine Jonah being painted like on a canvas, like the story of Jonah being spread across a canvas, think about what it takes to draw like a piece of art. You not only need like the focal image and the focal points, but you also have to have this background, right? The background of a piece of art serves so that when you put the focal point on, it pops out to you. 
Like the background is this, is this thing that gives you the contrast. So when you look at the picture, you can see the background, but what you really see is the, is the focal point, the main point. So here's what I want to do with you today. I want to give you three broad strokes that make the background of the book of Jonah. That as you read it, if you're just going to casually read it, you're probably not even going to notice it. You're going to notice stuff like a big fish and not a big God. So I, I want to give you these three broad categories, these three broad brushstrokes, these the three broad things that kind of form this background image, this background kind of on the canvas of the story for Jonah. Okay, so, so three things and then we'll finish up. So three things. Number one goes like this. Background stroke, back behind, back behind the book, right? You, you, don't, you don't read this in the book explicitly, but you see it everywhere implicitly. Okay, so, so back behind, you see a stunning picture of God. When you read the book of Jonah, you are confronted with a huge and great and grand God. And can I just tell you that picture is, is sorely needed in the church? One of the weaknesses in, in the modern church and men and women that come in and out of services just like this is a shrunk and shriveled view of God. We do not have the view of God like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 that literally weakens his knees. We don't have this view of God like Paul that when he tries to recount it later on, he basically just says, listen, I don't have the vocabulary to explain this thing. People don't have that view of God. This is where A.W. Tozer, an author, he says this, People are called, we Christians are called to a holy preoccupation, to an everlasting preoccupation with God. But it is impossible to be preoccupied with God when your view of God is shrunk and shriveled. So Jonah helps us here. Jonah serves us by showing us back behind the scenes, back behind all this stuff you see happening in the book of Jonah is a great and grand view of God. So just kind of work through this with me. In the book of Jonah, you see a God that is sovereign, that is in absolute control of everything. And you see this work out everywhere in Jonah. Every chapter, almost every verse speaks of the sovereignty of God. So just start working through this. Look at, look at verse four, the sovereignty of God. It's going to say this, that Jonah runs from him. He gets on a ship and he flees. And this is God's sovereign response back. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Have you ever tried to control the wind? Like men, when it's blowing 30 miles an hour, Take your wife outside, scream at the top of your lungs, wind, stop blowing, and just let your wife mock you for a while, right? It doesn't work. You don't have the capacity to control the weather. But, but here's what happens in the book of Jonah. God harnesses all the forces of nature and hurls it at a specific point and at specific people. That is a picture of the sovereignty of God. The emphasis is not on the storm. The emphasis is on a God who can hurl the storm. Okay, keep coming down in, in 1-7. They, they try to figure out who's responsible for this storm. So they cast lots on the ship. You remember this? They cast lots and what happens? The lots, the dice point to Jonah. So, so here's what it, it's saying back behind the, that text. It's saying that even the details of your life, like rolling the dice, even those details are controlled by a sovereign God. That there is no rolling of the dice that is not 
under the sovereign and complete control of God. There is no such thing as coincidence. There is no such thing as luck. They roll the dice and Jonah is the cause of the storm, right? Okay, keep coming down in one nine. Jonah's response to them. He says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. It is God who sovereignly creates everything that you see. He is the one being that can create everything out of nothing. This is the sovereign God you see in, in Jonah. Look at 117. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The emphasis is not on the fish. The emphasis is on this great God who can take a great big ocean and a great big fish and point them at a really small boat that just happened to throw a really small man over that boat that just happened to look like really good food for a whale, right? That's the point. I, I love what one commentator, he, he says this. He says, men have looked so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God of the fish. That's the issue. The burden of the book has nothing to do with the fish. The burden of the book is God is absolutely sovereign over everything. That's the burden of it. Okay, now just keep reading down. In 2.10, God speaks and the fish vomits Jonah up. How would you have liked to have seen that image, right? Like that's one of those things that when you think of like scenes that you would love to see in the Bible, that's one of them right there. Oh, a big fish just threw a man up. Look at chapter four, verse six. The Lord appoints a plant. Verse seven, he appoints a worm to eat the plant. Verse eight, the Lord appoints a scorching east wind to blister and burn the head of Jonah. The point is God is sovereign. That's the point. Okay, now think about this in the book of Jonah. It's not just a sovereign God, but it's an omnipresent God. It's a God that is everywhere. Psalms 139 says this. It's kind of asking a rhetorical question. Where am I going to go to flee from the presence of the Lord? And here's the, the, the kind of the rhetorical answer to the rhetorical question. Nowhere. And this is one of the points of Jonah. You cannot flee God. The harder you run from God, that's the harder you're going to run into God. Like, this is the point that you can't, I mean, it's, it's almost like a mocking, sarcastic tone to the book of Jonah. How are you going to run from God that is everywhere? And, and it's kind of this irony in the book of Jonah that he runs on the sea that in one nine he just says God created. Like, where are you going to go that God didn't create it in the first place? Like, you can't lock yourself in a closet away from the presence of God. You can't lock yourself in a room away from the presence of God. You can't flee to a distant enough place to get away from God. You can't do it. He's everywhere. But it's not just an omnipresent God. It's a God that is the king of everything. It's like there's this interesting play in the book of Jonah. The king of Nineveh, he is the most powerful person on the planet. Like, he, he is at that point the king of the most dominant kingdom on planet earth. And you see this real interesting contrast that God, the king of the universe, uses him as a peasant and a pawn in his plans and his purposes. That the most powerful of us are peasants when compared to God, right? That this is the imagery that you get that the throne of God, the rule of God is unchallengeable. That you can try as hard as you can to thwart the plans and purposes of God, but like Jonah, you find yourself serving him. This is where Charles Spurgeon, he used to say that omnipotence or this all-powerful ruler of the universe, he has many servants. Like you, like even in your attempts to not be a servant to the sovereignty of God, you're a servant to the sovereignty of God. 
that he is the king. And this is the king that Philippians 2 says, at the end of the ages, every man, every woman, every man that's powerful and every peasant will bow down to. He's the king. And he's also presented as the judge in Jonah. That he is the one person, the one being in the universe that can look at a city, that can look at the world and say this. The one person with this sort of authority that can look and say, Nineveh, you are not what I've created you to be. I created cities for this and you're that. And your wickedness has risen before me. It has come before my face. He is the one person in the universe that can look at Nineveh and say, 40 days and it's doomed for you. 40 days and it's over. He he is the righteous judge that does not deal kind of impartially with sin, that that does not kind of sweep sin under the rug, is not kind of morally neutral to sin. This is the judge that deals with all sin. And I, I, like, I can't help it as you just kind of take a step back and look at the sovereign God in Jonah. I, I think this is one of the interesting things that you just see. That this sovereign God is at the center of all things. That, that's where God lives. He is at the center of the universe. His plans and his purposes will go forward. They, they will be, be moved forward. They will be accomplished. Regardless of how hard we kick and scream trying to take his place. So so you're presented with this view of God that is great, that is glorious. So let me just ask you this question. Do you live in light of a God like that? Do you live in light of a God that that when you think of, when you stand before, weakens your knees? Do you live in light of that? I I, I love what A.W. Tozer says, kind of in commenting, on this sort of a thing. He says, much of our difficulty as seeking Christians stems from our unwillingness to take God as he is and adjust our lives accordingly. Let me read that one more time. Much of our difficulty as seeking Christians stems from our unwillingness to take God as he is and adjust our lives accordingly. Are you living in light of this God that you see plastered on the canvas behind the book of Jonah? Okay, so it's not just a stunning picture of God, though. You also see this stunning picture of sin. I mean, it is a stunning picture that you see in Jonah. I mean, you can't help but read Jonah, this this book of Jonah, and think, there are some messed up things going on here. And listen, this theme of sin starts really early in the scriptures. This is three chapters in when you see the rebellion of God's creation, right? You, when you see, when you see this rebellious Adam and Eve shake their finger at God as if they know best, as if God should be kind of submitting to their rule and their reign. I mean, it, it, the, the pages of scripture are soaked with the effects of sin, soaked with them. Chapter four of Genesis, Cain kills Abel. A couple of chapters later, Noah is drunk in his tent. A few chapters later, Abraham is trying to give his wife to the king. I mean, what is going on? It is soaked with the effects of sin. All of scripture, you cannot read scripture without seeing sin splattered all over it, specifically in the book of Jonah. And you see this play out maybe in two different ways. You've got a corporate picture of this in Nineveh. You've got a city that should go like this. God should look at Nineveh and say, that great city that is good 
and it's got a heart for me and living for me. But you don't see that, do you? In chapter 1, verse 2, you see that it's a great city and their evil has come up before me. So, so you see that in cities, people are concentrated. And when you get people concentrated, their sin is concentrated. So you have a whole city that, that the wickedness of it is rising up before God. That you've got a whole city being ruined by and ravaged by sin. So you see this played out on a corporate level, but you also see this played out on a very personal level, don't you, in Jonah? I, and, I mean, you, you see kind of sin presented this way in the book of Jonah. Storied presentation of what sin is. That sin is running from God. God speaks, you run. God speaks, you disobey. God speaks, you walk the other direction. God says, go this way, you go that way. This is the storied presentation of the ugliness of sin. And, and I love how Jonah kind of gives us both layers of sin. I, I think about this. I, I want to always remind you of this, especially when you see it so explicitly like this. That, that in Jonah, you see that sin has an outward component, that, that outwardly Jonah is running from God. Running is outward, right? Th this is chapter one. This is, this is the fruit of sin in Jonah's life. That in Jonah chapter one, verse three, he hears the command. He goes down to Joppa. Joppa would be a 50 mile walk. That is a picture of a man on the run from God. I barely walked to the refrigerator, right? This is a man that is trying desperately to get away from God. And if you kind of got your ge like geography of the lay of the land, you would know that, that Nineveh is to the east and Jonah is going to Tarshish, to the exact western end of the known world. He is going as far as he can from the place God has called him to go. This is the visible picture of sin. Men and women with their feet on the run from God. The outward component, the fruit of sin. But, but Jonah also shows us that there is an inward reality to the run. That, that running also has this inward component. And this is, this is the root of sin. The outward stuff, all these things that you see, these actions of sin, that's the fruit. But back behind the fruit, you have the root of sin, this unbelief, this, this hostility to God in his heart. And you see this in chapter four. Where in chapter four, verse two, he says, you know what, you know why I, I'm running? You don't know why I didn't go to Nineveh? You don't know why I walked 50 miles to Joppa and got on a ship that would take me, it, commentators say that it was almost a year's journey to get to Tarshish. You know why I'm that adamant about fleeing from you? Because I've got this inner hostility to you. Jonah 4, or chapter 4, verse 2. I don't like the fact that I knew you would forgive them. I don't like the fact that you're gracious to enemies. I don't like the fact that you've got mercy for enemies. I don't like that. See, this is the inner heart of sin. That bef before you ever do an outward action that's sinful, that offends the heart of God, you've always got this heart that has offended the heart of God. You've also got this heart that is on the run from God. You've also got this heart that has stiff-armed God and like Jonah, stuck the finger up to God and fled in the other direction. See, that's the heart of sin. It is this inner hostility that looks at God and says, I know you say this is best, but this is what I say is best. I know that you call me to submit to your reign, but in this one, you need to submit to my commands. See, this is the heart of God that leads to sin. 
This is the heart of God that leads to a 50-mile walk to Joppa. And, and let me ask you the question. Do you see yourself there? You made any recent visits to Joppa lately? You gotten on any boats lately to Tarshish? Right? I mean, maybe it's in how you deal with your marriage. Maybe it's in how you deal with your kids. Maybe it's in how you're dealing with your work. Maybe it's when you look at your schedule. Have you been on the boat to Tarshish lately, right? I mean, do you see the ugliness of sin, not just in Scripture, not just in Jonah, but in you? Can, can you see that? Been on those boats, taken those walks. You see the stunning picture of sin in, in the book of Jonah. And let me give you the last one. You see a stunning picture of grace back behind the scenes in the book of Jonah. Grace is, the word grace is not mentioned in the word Jonah, but it's like somebody just like kind of spilled their ink pen and poured it all over the page, right? Grace is everywhere in the book of Jonah. The one thing more stunning than the sin you see in Jonah is the grace of God that you see in Jonah. So, so take the story presentation. Sin is viewed as men and women, Jonah specifically, running from God. Grace is seen and, and kind of portrayed as God running after men on a relentless pursuit of them, on a diligent walk after them. This is, the, this is the picture of grace that you see. Now just think about this. If you were God, how would the book of Jonah sound? Here's how, it would, it would be really short if I was God. I told, Nineveh, or I told Jonah to go to Nineveh. He didn't go. He went down to Joppa. That's the end of the book. I killed him, right? I mean, that would be, that would be my version of Jonah. But that's not God's version of Jonah. Because even more than God is worried about getting his message to Nineveh, he is worried about capturing the heart of his messenger. In the book of Jonah, God is on a hunt for. He, he is stalking Jonah. So, so watch how grace plays itself out in unexpected ways in the book of Jonah. Right, follow along with me here. Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. That is grace. Do you realize when God speaks to you that that is grace from God? Do, do we realize, do we have a view of grace that sees us opening up the Bible and the Holy Spirit whispering to our heart? That is grace from God. God does not have to speak to you. God does not have to communicate to you. God doesn't have to do anything for you. But he comes in the, in, in the word and he speaks to us. That is grace from God. Let's keep going here. Verse 2, chapter 1. God, God calls Jonah to go and, and kind of on this call that Jonah doesn't want to go on. He, he calls him to do something that Jonah doesn't want to do. Do you see that the grace of God calls you to do things you don't want to do? I mean, do you have a view of grace that that's, that's that big? Because here, when God does that, you know what God's revealing in you? When God says do something and you, and you dig your heels in and say, no, I'm not going. You know what God's doing in you? He's showing you where your heart is not in alignment with his. You know what would have been, you know what would have been judgment of God on Jonah? Is to allow Jonah to live the rest of his life with this buried resentment toward God. 
But God, God comes in grace. He calls him to do something that he didn't want to do to reveal his heart of pride and arrogance and racial kind of bigotry. Okay, let, let's keep going here. Verse 2 and 3. God calls Jonah to do something he doesn't want to do. Next one. Or maybe to back up to verse 2 there. God calls Jonah to warn the people of Nineveh. Okay, now think about this. When, when you first read the words, 40 days and it's doom. 40 days in, in Nineveh, you're going to be overthrown. That doesn't really seem like grace, does it? But if in 40 days God's about to destroy somebody, don't you think it would be grace to let them know that? To give them an opportunity to repent? See, this is grace from God. The warnings of Scripture that sound so hard on the surface are soft underneath. They are grace to God for you and for your life, warning you of what your life is leading to, where you are going. See, the warning to Nineveh is grace from God. Let's keep reading here in seven. Okay, so Jonah rebels against the, the command of God. He gets on a ship selling to Tarshish. God hurls a storm at Jonah. Question for you. Is your view of grace big enough to allow God to graciously send storms in your life to rescue you from you? Is, is your view of grace that big? That, that you're okay with God sending the storms of wayward children of hurtful situations, of hurtful marriages into your life as grace to save you from you. I mean, isn't that an awkward thought? I mean, isn't that a big view of grace? This is what you see behind the story of Jonah, that God loves Jonah enough that he will take the forces of nature and literally hurl a hurricane at his ship. That is God's act of salvation for Jonah. Okay, when you come down to, to the end of verse, or to the end of chapter 1, verse 17, a big fish, God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. Unless you're from Oklahoma and like noodling, you don't see being bitten by a fish as a grace, right? Unless you're Jonah. But if you're Jonah, this is grace for you. If you're Jonah, God uses a fish to save you from you. God uses something as uncomfortable as the belly of a fish to lead you to repentance. Let me ask you this question. Are you okay with God creating and making very uncomfortable situations in your life to lead you to repentance? I mean, do we see that that could be grace from God and not just tragedy from God? That that could be the soft hand of God underneath what appears to be the hard hand of God in your life? Chapter 3, verse 1, God gives Jonah a second chance. Do you know that God doesn't have to give you a second chance? God owes no man any chance, no woman any chance. If you were Lot's wife, you didn't get a second chance. You're a pillar of salt. One look back, a pillar of salt. If you're Ananias and Sapphira in, in Acts chapter 5, you didn't get a second chance. One lie and you're, done, you're dead. God owes no man, no woman a second chance, but he graciously gives Jonah one. How about chapter 3? A wicked and evil city, mass revival takes place. That is the picture of grace. God is obligated to save no man and to save no city, but God graciously does in the book of Jonah. 
let me ask you this question. I think this is kind of what, what the grace of God in Jonah leads us to. The, the grace of God in Jonah leads us to kind of asking this question. Is my heart more like God's heart of grace or more like Jonah's hard heart of rebellion? What is my heart more like? like do I have this racially bigoted, this I've got to be better than somebody, this, this want for, for revenge of my enemy. So I have this hard and rebellious heart of Jonah or do I have this grace-filled run to enemies, the salvation of enemies in view? Do, do I have that heart of God? And, and maybe just as a way to kind of sum up all of this, I, I always want to remind you of this, that when you read the Old Testament, inside the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And so when you read through the book of Jonah, here's what it ultimately points us to. It ultimately points us to a greater and a better Jonah. One that would come about 700 years later that wouldn't run from the call of God on his life, but would run to the call of God on his life. That wouldn't run from his enemies, but would run to his enemies. That wasn't primarily concerned with self-preservation, but willingly sacrificed everything. That, that unlike Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, you remember this picture of Jonah after he has pronounced judgment on the city. He goes outside the city to wait for God to, to bring down fire and brimstone, to bring down his judgment. But unlike that Jonah, this new and greater Jonah, Jesus, he goes outside the city to bear the sins of the city. See, we, we've got one coming in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah points forward to this, this greater and better Jesus that is a greater and good savior, that when we start to put our faith and trust in him, rescues us. Just like the people of Nineveh graciously comes and redeems and saves. And, and so maybe it's just a way to summarize and, and finish this morning. Do you know that Jesus, that this Jesus that Jonah points to, that this Jesus that is saturated and, and kind of drenched in the book of Jonah, do you know that Jesus? I pray that you will, and I pray that Jesus would move us and motivate us to the mission of God for our city. Let's pray. <clears throat> I want to give you just a few minutes here to, um, to just be still before God and, and maybe just ask you a couple of questions for you to start just kind of sifting through your brain. <clears throat> Do you have this view of God, this stunning view of God that we see in Jonah. As you read the book of Jonah with your family this week, I'd encourage you to spend time reading it out loud together, to talk about it as a family, to, to, to be aware of this stunning picture of a sovereign king, a sovereign judge that is everywhere that you can't run from. I, I love how one, one pastor said it, that you can't find refuge from God. You can only find refuge in God. Do you, do you have this sort of a stunning picture of God? And maybe a great question as you kind of think through, as we start this book of Jonah, are there any areas of, of kind of pockets of resistance in your heart that are making you run from God? Maybe I can just ask it plainly. Are you on the run from God? kind of interesting how Jonah on the run doesn't just affect Jonah. Jonah on the run almost got the sailors killed. And dads, if you're on the run from God in this room, 
I think it's important for you just to know that that has consequences for everyone around you. Moms, if you're on the run today, consequences are everywhere around you. If you're a teenager on the run today, consequences will litter and ravage your family of your sin. Those consequences are are far-reaching and widespread. And maybe even just most importantly, do you see this picture of grace in Jonah? This God of grace that relentlessly pursues us even in our rebellion. I pray that God would break our heart in the midst of seeing these pictures. That this missionary impulse of God to love Nineveh and love the self-righteous Jonah would become our heart for the good of our city, for the good of our church, for the good of your life, that that would become our heart. God, we love you and we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for your inspired words, specifically the book of Jonah. And God, I thank you for being the stunning God who stands behind it as the sovereign controller over all things. And God, I thank you for this stunning picture of sin, the ugliness of it, this this run and this rebellion from you. And God, I pray for our hearts that, that you would be gracious to us and your grace would come and track us down and break our hearts of our hardness. God, I pray for that, that, that you would give us tender hearts towards you as we study Jonah. And God, I pray that you would plant deep into our bones the gospel. that that we would see God's sin and grace shine through this book and that you would be gracious to drive it deep into the cracks and crevices of our heart. God, you are good. You are gracious. We love you. It's in your great name that we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.